Let me take just a moment because we do have so many guests with us and because we took a week off from our Advent series um, last week for the cantata to catch us up on exactly what we're doing here, just, just very briefly. Uh, this Advent season, we've been looking at the theme that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. That's a quote from the Apostle Paul. All of the promises that God has ever made find, find their yes in Christmas, which is true. But we also have said that there are three major promises that God has made. Uh, we call them covenants. Uh, one is to Abraham, one is to Moses, and then the one today is to David. So what we've been looking at are these three uh, major covenants, three, three major promises that God has made in the past that with the coming of Jesus, with Christmas, they find their fulfillment and what are the implications of that in our lives? We've looked at Abraham, we've looked at Moses, and today we now turn to King Davis. What I want to do, Davis, King David, I don't know Davis is, King David, uh, what I want to do here is divide it up exactly like I've divided up uh, the other, uh, my other messages, uh, by just looking at the promise to David and then the yes to David. Let's just jump right in. Um, the, the first point is our Old Testament reading. Remember our pattern here this Advent season. The first point will be our Old Testament reading, which is the promise itself. And then the second point will be the New Testament reading that I just read. So you can have your Old Testament reading open uh, here for the promise to David. Now, what I need to do here is what I've done every, uh, every week is do some background because we're kind of just jumping into the story. So bear with me as I explain and kind of set the scene for the promise to David. According to the Bible, the human story begins not with human autonomy, but with human subjection. Do you think, it, do you think it's strange that God gave Adam and Eve one prohibition? He said, you are free to eat whatever you want but this one tree is off limits. You cannot eat from this. Now, you know why he's doing that? He's doing that to establish his authority. This is a relationship between God and man. This is a covenant between God and man. But he does want it to make it very clear. I'm in charge. I'm the one who gives the rules, and you are the ones who obey them. So he gives a command just to establish his authority. Now, there is nothing cruel about God's authority. In fact, this original setup was perfect because humanity is designed by God to exist beneath the authority of our God. That's the design, and we flourish under the design. What happened is when we rejected authority for the allurement of autonomy, that's when everything got messed up. The deceiver said to Eve... The reason why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because if you do, you will become like God yourself. It's a lie, but that's the lie that caught their attention. I could be my own God. I could be in charge. And so they ate, and in so doing, plunged humanity into the devastation of our own self-determination. History is now nothing more than a long tragedy of human autonomy us doing what we want and suffering for it. Now, God very well could hand 
humanity over to the literal hell of our own self-rule. That's what hell is, is handing us over to be our own gods, which we think sounds right, but in the end will become hell. But thankfully, the God whom we have spurned is too loving for that and thus begins a campaign to subdue again what belongs to him, which is everything. That's pretty much the story of the Bible, is God subduing what's already his. The conquest, though, is most vividly portrayed through the King saga in the Old Testament. Do you wonder where all of the all of those scriptures on the kings of the Old Testament, where that fits into? Well, that is demonstrating this, this need for our authority, for God's authority, this conquest for God to be king again, but it does it in a negative way. Meaning this. With almost no exception, the kings of Israel are horrible kings with equally horrible kingdoms, and the people suffer greatly because of it. If you read the stories in the Old Testament, it will leave you exhausted and longing for a good king, which is precisely the point of the Scriptures. The saga, the drama of Israel's kings evokes this desperation for a perfect king, a king who loves, a king who defends, protects, provides for his people. A king who rules in such a way that his kingdom flourishes as Eden once flourished. And yet this desperation that we feel is as hopeless as it is naive. Because who could ever rule like that? What king could ever rule in such a way that we perfectly flourish under his reign? Certainly not a fellow sinner like us, as history has proven ad nauseum. Well, this brings us to our passage. King David, the man after God's own heart, and the exception to Israel's failed kings, he receives a promise from God in the same way that Abraham and Moses received promises. 2 Samuel 7. I'll read it, um, part of it again, from the Old Testament reading, just to, just to root us in here. Verse 12. When, are day, when your days are over and, the, and, you have rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never take away, be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now that promise that God gave to David is twofold, okay? Um, it has a double meaning. The immediate contextual meaning is that David will be succeeded by Solomon, whom God promises to bless and establish his throne, and uh, Solomon will build a temple for the Lord in Israel. However, there's much greater meaning here as well. Did you notice when I read that how expansive the language is? That word forever appears four times. Specifically, look at verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's a promise that Solomon could not fulfill. In fact, that is a promise that no one can fulfill. For who from the line of David could ever rule forever? 
Who from the line of David could establish a perfect throne and a perfect kingdom that will last forever? This is language reserved exclusively for the original king of humanity, God, our eternal creator himself. And we all know that God cannot come from the line of David, cannot be born as a son of David. What a ridiculous thought. But it is a thought that the prophets of Israel would not ever give up on. Isaiah 9, you know this Christmas passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, meaning he will be a king. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, meaning he will be a perfect king, the king that you're longing for. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. His government, his reign, his kingdom will expand forever. On the throne of David, it's going back to this promise, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. He will be a king, not just any king, a perfect king, not just a perfect king, a king who fulfills the promise given to David, a forever perfect king. How? A child born from the line of David who will be a perfect forever king that humanity is desperate for. How can this be? Unless the creator himself is born from the line of David. Well, let's find out. We've seen the promise to David. Now let's turn our attention to the New Testament passage and the yes to David. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Obviously, don't miss that comment. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this is, this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. What mortal man could ever be called the Son of God? Now listen to this explicit promise of fulfillment. The Lord God will give him the throne of his fathers, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How is it possible that a baby born will reign forever and establish a kingdom forever unless this newborn baby is God-born baby? Well, the baby grows up, begins his ministry with these words. The kingdom of God is at hand. My coming is the coming of God's kingdom. My coming is the inbreaking of God's reign, meaning I am the king of God's kingdom. Now you tell me, who is the king of the kingdom of God? God and God alone. So the reason why David's kingdom would yield an eternal perfect kingdom is because David's kingdom would yield the king of God's kingdom. Jesus was debating with the Old Testament experts of the day who had a real problem with Jesus and his claims. And he points them to one verse, a psalm that King David wrote. Psalm 121, verse 1, where David says this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus said this to them, 
if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? If David in the psalm calls his Lord and you know that the Messiah is from, is going to be a son of David, how is it that David's son is his Lord? Jesus is saying, why is David calling his own descendant his Lord? How is it that the son of David is also the Lord of David? Unless the son of David is the Lord himself. And this, of course, is the claim of Christmas. Christmas is the birth of the creator, the rightful ruler and king of creation, born into the world of his own creation to resubdue everything, what rightfully belongs to him. But here's what happened. The world killed the king. Creation killed its creator. In many ways, the life of Jesus can be viewed as a clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And it all leads up to this climactic showdown between Jesus and Rome, the world's most powerful kingdom, and Rome crucified Jesus. And it would seem that the burial of the king was the burial of the kingdom of God. And the end of David's promise, for how can a dead king reign forever? It would seem in one last act of sinful defiance, fallen creation has killed the creator. But out of the darkness of defeat comes the surprising return of the king. Jesus rises from the dead and resurrects with him the hope of God's kingdom. The resurrection is the launch of God's conquest to reign once again over the world of his own creation. And Jesus gathers his disciples and he tells them, I want you to go to the nations and I want you to teach the nations to obey me. Do you know what he's saying there? I want you to go tell the nations I'm their king. Obey me, their rightful king. And then the king ascends to his throne in heaven as sovereign of the conquest of the kingdom of God until he returns again to establish his eternal reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's speak ahead to the moment and then we're going to talk application. Christmas was the birth of David's yes. Here now the fullness of David's yes from Revelation 11. Handel's glorious hallelujah chorus that we heard last week written from one verse. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. And Handel just takes that forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords. King of kings, Lord of lords. Forever, ever, 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 ever. It's beautiful. The world has become the kingdom of God. And Christ shall reign forever and ever. The authority of God, which once rejected, is now established. And finally, God's promise to David is fully and forever yes. But we're not there yet, are we? Here we live caught in between. We celebrate the coming of the king and the launch of his kingdom. And then we pine after the return of the king and the fullness of his kingdom. What do we who call Jesus our king and identify ourselves as citizens of his kingdom, what do we do during our sojourn of the in-between? I'll tell you what you do. 
We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and then we give our lives away to be the answer to our own prayer. C.S. Lewis. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. And Christmas is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. The rightful king has landed in disguise. I don't think you'd expect him as he came. Humble, meek, suffering, dying. And we, his followers, are now joining his great conquest of sabotage. Jesus is king, but it doesn't look like he's king. Our job, therefore, is to make it look like what it truly is. To reclaim for Jesus what Jesus already lays claim to. Simply put, we are ambassadors of his reign on earth. Now, that call, application-wise, that call plays out both culturally and individually, okay? It is a social horizon and an individual horizon. Let's briefly apply each of those. Culturally, what are the implications of this? I'll state it as simply as I can. Your job in this world, follower of Jesus... Citizen of his kingdom, your job in this world is to engage the world by making it look more like Jesus' world. Wherever he has you. Where does it not look like Jesus is in charge? What would it look like for Jesus to be in charge there? Imagine that and then do it. Your vocation, your family, your neighborhood, your city... What would these things look like if Jesus were in charge of them? Because he is in charge of them. Jesus is king, so make it look like he's king. Corrupt and immoral uh, practices at work do not look like Jesus is in charge of that vocation. You need to make it look like he's in charge. Incessant infighting with the home Within the home, where there is no peace in the home, that does not look like Jesus is in charge of that home. It needs to look like Jesus is in charge. Poverty and homelessness in our city, the depression and um, hopelessness of the suburbs, the opiate crisis in Kentucky, the destitution of Appalachia, which is next door, racism and prejudice of any form, incessant greed and overconsumption, out-of-control sexual crisis and pornography addiction, obsession over power and fame. None of these prevalent cultural practices look like Jesus is in charge of our culture. Our job is to reclaim them in the name of Jesus. Don't get overwhelmed with that. I'll just, uh, or I'll just choose one social application. Just choose one. One thing in your context that's unique to you, that you're passionate about, you're gifted toward, and go after it in the name of King Jesus, the Lord of the bluegrass. But first, uh, the first place, the campaign must start is not outside but within. We dare not turn this into a cultural campaign and neglect that the kingdom of God begins as a campaign within. Yes, Jesus is the king of the nations, but he is first and foremost your king. Does it look like that? 
Now, it may not look like that at all because you would say, no, Jesus is not my king, and I have no intentions of making him my king. And I would appreciate honesty like that. It may be, no, because I kind of just nominally, culturally identify him in some way and come to Christmas services and stuff like that. And um, I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not like outright against Jesus, but certainly my king. Well, let me, let me offer him to you in maybe an unconventional way um, this morning. Do you know what Christian conversion is? Giving Jesus what is rightfully his. Of course, it saves us. Yes, of course, it saves us. But only because he saves that which is his. Meaning you can't ask him to be your savior without bowing the knee to him as king. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, allow me to extend to you a very unconventional invitation that you may have never heard before. Instead of raging against his authority, instead of fighting and raging against the authority of Jesus in a dispute that you cannot win, give to Jesus what rightfully belongs to him, your life. You belong to him. Give to him what is his. Surrender to the authority of King Jesus. Now, what you will find, what you will discover is something uh, very unexpected on the other side of submission. In submission, you will at last be free. Because if it is true that Jesus is your rightful king, then you were made to live under his kingship. You were made to live under his ownership. He's a better king over you than you are over you. In fact, you're a pretty bad king over you, and I am too. We all are. His authority brings freedom and life. Your autonomy brings enslavement and death. Bow the knee to your king, and you will discover that truth for yourself. But beyond conversion, to those who name Jesus as our king, the application is only more surrender, people. The Christian life is Jesus subduing every last remnant outpost of rebellion within. He owns all of you and he will not relent until it looks like he owns all of you. So I want you to look at every area of your life with this question in mind, who is king, you or Jesus? Who is king of your schedule? You or Jesus? Be honest with it when you look at it. Who is king of your money and your resources, you or Jesus? Who is king of your sexuality? You or Jesus? Who is king of your tongue and the way you use your words? You or Jesus? Who is king of your imagination and thought life? You or Jesus? Who is king of your private life when nobody's watching? You or Jesus? Who is king of your marriage? Who is king of your singleness? Who is king of your parenting? You or Jesus? Who is king of your appetites, your cravings, your longings? You or Jesus? Who is king of your dreams and your future? You or Jesus? Who's king of your circumstances? You or Jesus? Who's king of your vocation, your work, where you're going to do on Monday, or I guess not this Monday, Tuesday, whenever? Who's king of your normal life? You or Jesus? Thank you. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. The answer to every single one of these questions is Jesus. 
And you follower of Jesus already know that. But I'm not asking for your answer. I'm asking for your assessment. There's a difference. Jesus is in charge. But where does it look like he is not in charge? Survey your life for any area where you are raging against his authority. Apologize to your king. Repent and relent. And every time you do, as painful as it may be, and it is so painful to say, Jesus, your king, not me. As painful as it may be, on the other side of surrender, you will find the goodness of his reign and rule. Our assurance of pardon this morning. Fascinating verse. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Okay, that's what he's saying. Come to me, all of you who are exhausted from your own self-rule. I know you're exhausted being your king. You're, you're, you're burdened. You're filled with guilt and shame. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Oh, he's going to set me free. He's going to give me rest. He's going to be the answer, my peace. Now notice what he does here. Take my yoke upon you. Do you know what a yoke is? A wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of animals to pull a cart for their master. It's an instrument of ownership and mastery. Jesus' answer to your exhaustion is a yoke, which seems utterly exhausting. It is ownership and mastery, only a yoke to him. Mastery and ownership belonging to him. Who is he? I am gentle. I am humble in heart. And you are going to find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is your king. Jesus must be your king. But your king is gentle. Your king is humble. Don't believe me, look at his birth. Your king's yoke is easy and his lordship is life. Bow the knee to the only slavery that will set you free. Let me pray. But I pray that we would all do that, that we would all this Christmas Eve, what a great way to honor this. Yes, in the celebration and in the feasting and in the gifts and the parties, but also what a way to honor your coming by bowing the knee to you as king. What child is this? We say, this is Christ the king. This baby is our king. May we bow the knee to you, Jesus. Maybe for the first time, finally relent. Or maybe as followers, just this thing we've been holding on to, in spirit you're faithful, that we need to just say, enough is enough. Your ways are better than mine. Give us the courage and strength to do that and use the sacrament uh, to fill us with the assurance of your love, with the goodness of your mastery, with the freedom of your lordship. Assure our hearts that we might be set free to bow. In your name we pray. Amen.